Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. The Vampire Lovers by Stolen from their 2018 album Fragment, available on Apple Music. Welcome everyone to episode 39 of the Classic Chorus Club podcast. And that song is very apropos because we're talking about the many, many loves of Count Yorga spread out over the course of two films as we kick off a happy Yorga New Year to everyone. I'm Richard Chamberlain from Kansas City Cinephile and Monster Movie Kid, and to my right, you are, sir? I am Jeff Owens. I'm from ClassicHorrors.club, and I guess I'll throw it in there, DC Comics guy. You should. You should. Absolutely. we got to start this episode off with a couple of things before we dive in. Obviously, this is our third anniversary episode. Three years ago today... Well, maybe not today, but three years ago this month, we we launched the podcast and we talked about our good friend King Kong. And, you know, we're going strong three years later. We may not have 300 episodes under our belt, but with one exception, we've been cranking out episodes every single month and having uh, a whole heck of a lot of fun. So I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Maybe we should have done something grander than Count Yorga, but you know what? These are fun flicks and I think a good way to start off the new year. Also, the disclaimer is this episode is being recorded in the past, the ghost of Christmas past, so to speak. Uh, we're recording this prior to Thanksgiving, actually, for the very reason that uh, Jeff would be moving north and uh, needed a little bit of breathing room during the holidays. And so I said, you know what, let's just kind of get a jump start and record a little bit early. So we're going to be doing maybe a slightly abbreviated episode yes we'll be five hours instead of ten <laughs> absolutely you know we don't know maybe some big event happened in december maybe you know i don't know uh maybe we lost somebody maybe heaven forbid the new year ends and or the old year ends and, and we've lost somebody grand but anything like that or any additional feedback we will have it at the end of the episode. If something big comes in that we want to share with you, some big news, Jeff will add it on at the at the end of the episode in post-production. So that's why we're not going to be starting off the episode if anything big happened, because we are recording this in the past. It is For us, it is still 2019. For you, it's 2020. So, you know, this. I'm going to rambling at this point. I'm not used to starting off the episode. Jeff threw me for a loop. You know what we ought to do? I 
I can't remember the particulars, but there's some sort of exercise you do at, at work or in your business where you, you look to the future and you, you pick out whatever period of time it is and you say, it's sort of like affirmations, you know. You, so here we are in November of 2019. We should say, here it is, January of 2020. And you know what, Richard? I didn't end up moving north to the cold of Minnesota. I ended up uh, with a huge inheritance, and I'm on the beach in Mexico right now. That's my new home. Uh, where are you in in January of 2020? What what is that thing from the Marvel movies? You know, where they have like the 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 replicant of themselves. You know, actually, this isn't the real Richard Chamberlain. The real Richard Chamberlain uh, is is off somewhere warm because it's probably very cold. I would assume in January of 2020, and I probably. You know, I always love snow and I love the cold up until Christmas. Post-Christmas, when we get into January and February, I get over it pretty quick. I'm ready for spring and some green leaves. But as I'm recording this, I've just started listening to Christmas music. So that's the the intricacies of recording ahead of schedule. But it's going to be a fun episode. We're, we're talking about a couple of films that I've never seen What are the about Yorga? Are these first-time viewings for you? No, uh, I have seen Count Yorga, and uh, I'll talk about it a little bit. My feelings have changed a little bit over when I first saw it, uh, but I have seen it before. I don't believe I've seen the return of Count Yorga. That that would be a first-time viewing this time. There are interesting films with pros and cons to them, um, and it led me to doing a little side journey uh, just last night as we're recording this to take a, a look at another vampire flick that Robert Quarry did in between the two Count Yorga films, a movie called The Death Master, and I'll be talking a little bit about that. Now, by the time this goes live, I assume my review has probably gone live over at Dread Media, but you know, it took me three years to do the Limehouse column, so you never know. <laughs> Nonetheless, I'm going to be reviewing that proper, but I do want to talk about it because there's some interesting things related to that movie in relation to the two Count Yorga films and Robert Quarry's performance and similarities and and maybe as a fun little homework for people to kind of seek out that film. We'll be talking about that in between our two films this month. You know what else there are pros and cons to? I don't know what. Joining our Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club Podcast. It is a pro for you to join, and it is a con for you not to. I was going to say, what's the con to joining? (laughs) Well, yeah, I don't know if that came out right, but... Uh, yeah, join. You know, I could say, let's welcome our new members and kind of pause, and then I could insert later, John Smith, Susie Williams, you know, in a totally different voice like they do. Yeah, you know. Uh, The other thing Richard didn't say is... uh, we're recording two episodes in one day. So uh, if we seem a little loopy, um, it's because um, we've been talking all day. For, for us, yeah. we've just wrapped up talking about the exploitation films. You've had a month to recover from that. For us, it's very fresh in our minds. So now we're diving into vampires and and Marriott Hartley and, and everything that Count Yorga has to offer. So... And yes, there will be Star Trek references, a big one, in fact, that I wonder if Jeff probably doesn't see this coming. He's looking at me quizzically, so no, there is a big one with these films, actually, Mm. so yeah. Okay. And I, I, I don't believe I have a Doctor Who reference in this one, so 
Unless, oh, come now. You'll come up with something. You know, I'm looking up my notes and thinking, do I, do I, do I have any Doctor Who references? I don't think that I do. I've got several Star Trek, but this might be one of those rare episodes where I'm, I'm grasping at straws for, for something. Maybe something will come to me. What would you do if I swooped in and had one for you? I, I would be impressed. You'd have, you've done that a yeah, time I or have. two. Yeah. You've done that a time or two. So, uh, nonetheless... Yeah, the Internet Movie Database is a wonderful thing. <laughs> uh, also, would be a pro if you would call and leave us a voicemail at 616-649-2582. As Richard will tell you, that's 616-649-CLUB. <laughs> yes. Be a con for you not to take advantage of one of the many ways that you can contact us and give us feedback so that we can insert it at the end of the show. Which makes no sense, because they will not hear this before the show goes. I, I do that all the time. I assume they're listening live, and they can send in feedback, and it would be on this episode. Should we perhaps take a break and come back and talk about our movies? I think we probably should. We'll be right back. Vampire is a film that throws you into a world of which we know little. Strange, frightening, whispered from generation to generation until it becomes a scream out of the past. Enjoyed your little joke last night, Doctor. But as you can see, tonight is mine. Incredible, yeah. You really are a vampire? Yes. It happened to them. It could happen to you. Count Yorga, vampire. One minute a truck is picking up a coffin from the port of Los Angeles and delivering it to a gated mansion. The next, the mysterious Count Yorga is leading a seance to contact Donna's recently deceased mother. Yorga has apparently arrived from Bulgaria to add members to his traveling band of vampire brides. And Donna is his number one recruit. The year is 1970, and Hammer is going strong at this point. We still have Christopher Lee as Count Dracula across the pond, as they say. So not a surprise that the people at AIP said, we've got to come up with our own version, right? Count Dracula had been going on for a while. They were doing Vincent Price films, and... I don't know if this was the start of them looking to replace Price, but as I found out during my Vincent Price month, and I don't know if we've talked about it on the show or not, maybe, I'm trying to remember now, but Robert Quarry was considered to be Vincent Price's replacement for a period of time. I don't honestly see it. I like him as an actor, but he's not Vincent Price, and Vincent Price was still in his prime as far as I'm concerned. Yes, he was older, but he was still cranking out some good movies around this time. But nonetheless, the powers that be uh, were looking for a replacement, someone younger. And that's really where this movie comes into play. Robert Quarry, prior to this, I think he had done a, a played an uncredited scientist in Colossus, the Foreman Project. This was kind of his first big genre film. It's a pretty good start, I guess, to, to dive into the genre. Count Yorga Vampire, or... 
as it was called originally, and on the copy that I saw, the loves of Count Yorga or Iorga. It, it actually was spelled I-O-R-G-A. I think it was intended to be pronounced Yorga, and then they realized people aren't going to know how to pronounce it, so let's just put the Y in front of it. But yes, the, the loves of Count Yorga Vampire, that was on the, the copy I had, which was the MGM Midnight Movies version. What about you? I watched it on Amazon Prime, and it was that as well. Supposedly, uh, the when they did re-release it as uh, Count Yorga Vampire, I guess the graphics are poor for the words Count Yorga. I have not seen that version, so I don't know. Though That's just a little bit of trivia that I picked up. Um, and I don't know where you would see that. I don't know, because this, of course, was released by Twilight Time on Blu-ray. I can't imagine that they would have that on there, except maybe as an extra. I would think that they would have The Loves of Count Yorga Vampire, since that was the original title, I would assume. Do you know why that was the original title? Well, this was going to be a dirty movie. (laughs) And you can kind of get the gist of that by watching this film. There was elements of some blue movie left in it, uh, specifically the scene, I forget the two characters in the van, that just kind of like goes on a little bit longer than it should. Now, I watched these movies with Carla, and I remember she's sitting there, and she's like, oh, my God. She says, really? They're going to start going at it in the van? In, the, in somebody's driveway. <laughs> and I said, well, yep, I think that's where this is going. And then I explained to her, I said, yeah, I had just read that this was originally going to be a soft core porno film. That's the title. Now, did you find out anything? I, I've done some research, but did you find out the reasons as to why it ultimately was not soft core? Uh, no, I did not. Please enlighten me. Money. It was all oh. about money. They were having a problem. Wait, 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 wait. It costs more money to make a soft core porn <laughs> than it does a horror movie? Yes, it does. No. They were concerned that they weren't going to make their money oh, back okay. at the box office. And they were having a hard time getting the rating they wanted from the Motion Picture Association of America. Um, the movie, the, the MPAA, they wanted to give the film either an R or an X rating. American International Pictures said they really wanted the GP rating, which is the precursor to PG, because they could make money off that. And giving it an RX rating was going to limit people who could see it, going to limit which theaters would play it, limit drive-in showings at the time. And by giving it a GP rating, it was going to give it the largest possible number of theaters and again, most importantly, drive-in theaters, which were still very popular at the time, especially for movies like this. In order to do that, they had to remove about three minutes of sexual content and violent content in order for the Motion Picture Association to give it the GP rating. Mm-hmm. And I guess they also even altered some of the movie's soundtrack to lessen uh, the impact of the violent scenes as well as the softcore porno feel. They they had to kind of change around the soundtrack in the 11th hour. So no boom chicka bow wow. I guess I guess <laughs> that I could see that happening in the in the in the uh, the van scene. All that aside though, definitely get a a vibe from Count Yorga that, you know, he he's got you don't have male vampires lurking about. He's got all these women, which I guess is kind of a typical 
vampire thing, right? The, the vampires always go for the women and stuff, you know. And but he's got kind of a bevy of beauties hanging around, and he, you definitely get the gist that he's more of a. Uh, I'm trying to say here, his libido perhaps was a little bit more active than say Bella Lugosi uh, in his his version of a vampire. Yeah, I think he's more of a watcher, though. I mean, he likes to sit in his throne and watch. I mean, especially in the second one. In the first one, he does go after, and there, as one of my notes, was a very, uh, well, it wasn't sexy to me, but I can see that it would have been a sexy scene where when he goes in to bite his victim, you know, it's a short little bite, and then, you know, looking into each other's eyes, and he goes to the other. I mean, he goes in and out like... Sorry. (laughs) No, I, I did not intend to say that. But uh, he, his teeth, he bite, he, he he bites, comes up, bites, you know, several times, and there's you know an, an intended sort of sexuality or sensuousness there with that that I think is a little bit unique. I mean, it's there with Christopher Lee and all that, but it's like in one you know long scene. Usually, it's not so action packed. Yeah, I, I mean, and I guess it always vampire roles. I mean, there's some are, are sexier than others, right? Frank Langella is is a very romantic, very sexually charged vampire. Christopher Lee, I think, varies depending on the movie. I mean, sometimes he comes across more violent. Other times there is a bit more of a romance there. And I guess it depends on what you're looking for. Well, no, I'm not talking about romance. I'm talking about sexuality. Well, right. I guess that's where I was trying to say. Yes. You know, there's... You, depending on the film, there, there's a different vibe from Christopher Lee. And I would argue, and some would say I'm wrong, but for me, I never got that vibe from Lugosi. But I know some, I've heard some people, or I've seen it in articles, that think Lugosi was very romantic. Maybe the accent, you know, I guess if you're turned on by an accent, that's going to send you down a particular path. But I, there, there's so many vampire films over the years. It's like there's either... The vampire is either animalistic or violent or, you know, then it's the more laid back, sexual, kind of like Fright Night, for example. There's a lot of sexuality in that. And that's definitely the the vampire that, that Robert Quarry plays in these two films. He's playing a more sexually charged vampire with, I mean, certainly he has his moments where, but even like those moments where he kind of goes in for the kill and gets a little bit more violent... I'm never convinced that he's a overly brutish vampire and that he's that he's from a physicality standpoint I never I never see him as being that imposing of a vampire that's not his version at least that's not what I got out of it yeah you know I I'll be honest I knew that that's why uh, it originally had that name I did not know they came so close to actually making it a movie like that and I was struggling kind of to think well, because you make it sound like there weren't, there were just some fine tuning to take it from softcore porn to a horror movie, and I was kind of struggling with that. But I look at my notes now, and I, I have things like so and so goes to the front door. Uh, oh, I gotta find that. She stands in the open door, massaging her breasts. So yeah, I guess that could have been not a far stretch to be softcore porn. Well, and unfortunately the footage that they did you know cut out it's no longer exist i mean yeah. it it is long since gone but yeah there's definitely in a, in particular comparing the two films you definitely don't get that 
from the supporting characters at all. I mean, you're not going to see Marriott Hartley in the second film massaging her breasts. That's not going to happen. Neither thank, do we want to see No, yes, thank you. God. But you definitely, there, there's very much so elements in the first film. Now, what I will say is you also mentioned the drive-in in there. This really, to me, is a definitive drive-in movie. It just has the look and the feel uh, we were talking before we started recording, there's not a lot of plot here. And just the way it's filmed, I want to talk about that a little more too. This to me, when I think of 70s drive-in movie, this fits the bill. Yeah, there's there's definitely, and you got to go into this movie knowing vampire lore, as always, does get kind of played around and tweaked a little bit from film to film. But there's certain things in this movie that, again, don't make a lot of sense. And even more so in the second film, there's things that really kind of get thrown out the window. You just have to kind of go along with the flow. And I know that was a problem with Carla because she hadn't seen as many vampire films as I have. I'm used to the lore going this way and that way. And, and for her, it was that was a stumbling block for her. But once I kind of explained to her, okay, this is not necessarily uncommon in vampire films. And you just kind of have to kind of just go with it then it was easier for her to to kind of wrap her head around it then and say, okay, then clearly, you know, this is normal. And although, again, when we get to the second movie, I think there's certain things that really don't make sense in the second film that they really definitely played with the lore. But I think there's certain reasons why there's things that happen in the second movie. But we're jumping ahead of ourselves anyway. Yeah, I've written about this before and we may have talked about it, but it is it's interesting that each vampire movie sort of creates their own lore or legend or rules, if you want to call them that, within the movie. Uh, and that's that just always interests me. It's like there's some point in the movie where they explain what a vampire can do, you know, and how you can harm it. In this one, and I don't know specifically what you're talking about, but it opens with a narration and it's a pretty cool narration that goes through that, what vampires are, what skills <laughs> what skills they have, you know, and what it takes to destroy them. And that they're getting their rules, you know, done right at the beginning. Uh, I have to point out that I absolutely love this, this phrase that they use. They talk about when uh, exposed to the ray of the sun, it would instantly decompose the vampire into a a miasma of putrid decay. Yes. <laughs> I love that. That yeah. miasma of putrid decay. Yeah, it was funny you mentioned that because when that happened, Carla did an about face and looked <laughs> at me and she says, "What? <laughs> what did he just say?" And I said, "I have to go back and because I, you know, I was like, I was like, I well, something is. I had to go back and say miasma." And she's gone. Well, okay, you know, can't say I've ever heard that in the film before. I loved it too. I thought that was yeah, great. Miasma of putrid decay. So. Um, Robert Quarry had this was the start of a brief run for him that very quickly you know changed and I'm wondering you know is it these films is it because you know he didn't have longer longevity and we'll talk more about how quickly things turned later but was it because these were drive-in films do you think that he didn't have like a longer stretch of of films or is it because of him as an actor was he problematic behind the scenes we i think we've mentioned before there were problems between him and vincent price because vincent price viewed him i mean he knew that aip was looking at him as 
you know, being someone who was going to ultimately kind of become the next big star. And Robert Quarry knew that when they were working on Madhouse, you know, Robert Quarry was certainly acting a certain way and and kept going on about how, well, you know, I, you know, I, you know, can sing opera. And Vincent Price's response was, well, you sure as hell can't act. I feel harsh a little bit, but I mean, Robert Quarry, I think, was limited as an actor but he is good in this role, I think. But he's not great. And I some people I know who love these films, I think Dominique Lamsey's loves these, and she's probably like, you know, smashing something at the moment. He wasn't bad, but I think he could have been better. Was it his performance? Was it the script? I don't know. I don't know. He doesn't do anything for me. For me, it's a lack of for a better word, charisma, maybe. I mean he's yeah. he is good in the he to me he's good in this role actually mostly in the second one to me when he does just kind of sit back and gives a look um oh uh oh gosh i don't know if it was in this one or the second one but one of them uh they well in both movies they end up going to his house to confront him at the end and he's sitting in his chair in the living room or whatever and someone comes in and says oh don't get up you know don't stand and he just gives a little look like are you kidding? I wasn't even thinking of standing. There, there's an there, air, there is an like, air about him. Yeah, yeah, there's things like that are good, but it's subtle. And I just, I don't see him anywhere near a replacement for Vincent Price, for sure. No. Maybe, I don't know, maybe if he had had a role that was more of a showcase for him. And that's where I was kind of going with, is then maybe is it that these films weren't designed to maybe stretch his acting abilities and maybe be more of that showcase did he have more to offer maybe maybe not i don't know well i i don't even really know robert quarry i mean do you have his background where did he come from what movies did he do well i mean as far as like genre films like i said i mean colossus the foreman project he was just an uncredited scientist and then he stumbles upon count yorga role he did tv work and he has this this brief run where he's doing the two Yorga films, the Deathmaster film, which we'll talk about, Dr. Fibes Rises Again, he was in Sugar Hill, and then by 1975, so just five years after Count Yorga, he's doing guest roles on Saturday morning TV shows like The Far Out Space Nuts and The Lost Saucer. <laughs> okay. You're familiar with both of those shows. Yes, So Far Out Space Nuts, Bob Denver slumming it big time, I think with Chuck McCann. It was a one and done, 15 episodes I think at best, and that show disappeared. I remember it. I watched it probably every week when it was on because it was science fiction on a Saturday morning. But it's a bad show, and I'm not even sure it's ever been released on home video. The Lost Saucer. Jim Neighbors and Ruth Buzzy. I again, I remember watching those, and again, I think maybe a few episodes popped up on VHS. I don't know that they've ever released those on DVD. I'm not sure who would want to watch those. That was a bad show. Are you a fan of no? But I have a confession to make, and uh, I'm almost embarrassed, but yet proud at the same time. Guess who I've been following on Twitter lately? She's alive and well and kicking better than ever. Ruth Buzzy? Ms. Ruth Buzzy, yes. I know Ruth Buzzy. I mean, yeah, she she was 
kind of all over television for a while, guest roles, lots of game shows, as I recall. God love her that she's still alive. <laughs> yep. I mean, but I mean, imagine, I mean, you're, you're headlining films. Right. Right. And you're supposedly the replacement of Vincent Price, and by 1975, you're doing Saturday morning TV, which really, as an actor, that was almost, I think that had to have been probably bottom of the barrel back then. It's worse than episodic television, worse than any other movie role that you could get. I think worse than daytime television, because at least daytime television had a more rabid following you're on a kitty show on Saturday mornings and a bad one at that. You know, he died in 2009 at the age of 83 of a heart condition. This was the peak of his career, really. I mean, he did lots of just television guest roles and I think some minor film supporting roles. And I don't know why that everything just kind of turned for him so quickly other than the genre changed. He was in more innocent horror films, and by 75, it was Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and innocent films like these really quit being made, and he didn't adapt and didn't go for the slasher flicks. He had a limited range, and... Yeah, I think I'd have to see him in something else. Now, you recently watched uh, Dr. Fives Rises again. How was he in that? Um, Very similar, which makes me wonder if he had a particular style, kind of like the proverbial, you know, what do they call it? Like two-trick pony, right? So, Or one-trick pony. Two-trick pony. <laughs> one-trick pony. There's a lot of actors who have a style, and no matter what role you see them in, it's the same thing. Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, yet those are really good actors, and they could play the same person in all these films and yet still be entertaining. But if you're a lesser actor... All of a sudden, your your roles get very very limited, and maybe that was maybe that was the curse of why he didn't go on to bigger and better fame. He just had a limited amount that he could do. Doctor Fibes, he's kind of doing the same thing, with just without the fangs in his mouth. So now, when we talk about Deathmaster, well, let's talk about Deathmaster now because that's it's a good opportunity because we're talking about Robert Quarry because that movie is all about him. So Deathmaster was made in between the two Yorga films. It was made in December of 1970. Cheapy film. I can't even remember the name of the studio who did it originally. Uh, it was filmed over the course of seven weeks. So, I mean, it was more than a two or three day shoot. But it is, he's playing a vampire once again. He plays the vampire in that movie called Cord. It is kind of a vampire meets Charlie Manson there was a lot of Manson mania going on at the time. A lot of the hippie culture was still going strong. There was interest in sitar music and peace, love, and and the the tuning out. You know, all of that that time period, and that's what the movie's about. His his the movie starts off with the character called Barbado or Barbados, depending on what point in the film, <laughs> and he's the Bruda. Of, of the Yorga films, essentially. But he goes up on this hill by a beach and he starts playing this flute. And magically, this coffin comes ashore. And in, in the coffin, we later find out, is Cord, the vampire. Now, he's got long hair, very much Charlie Manson-esque. You know, has long black hair off to the side. He's wearing a goatee. And apparently in the movie, he 
ad-libs most of his lines. And when he sits there, it's kind of like this... And the movie was called Guru Vampire. Originally, he's sitting there speaking to all of these hippies and you should, you know, this and do this and do this and you love this and love this and this. Oh, and by the way, you know, then he kind of goes into the vampire stick. The the kids get hypnotized by the music uh, and the bongo drums. <laughs> and you see him, you know, he does, when he he's wearing the same fangs, which were made by his dentist. He wore them in the two Yorga films. So they look very convincing. Uh, when he becomes a vampire, he has goes pasty face, much like he does in the in the Yorga films. He actually bites one woman in what's kind of a violent turn that becomes sexual. And then the rest of the kids all of a sudden start randomly changing to vampires with no explanation. The movie is very much a product of its day, but his performance is very much in the same vein as Yorga with a little bit of guru hippie thrown in. But once he gets past that, I mean, because early in the film, he's he's sitting on the floor and and luring the kids in. But once he goes into vampire mode, he's, he's kind of doing yoga again. Again, with some subtle differences because he's this guru-ish type. And, and ultimately, you know, the movie kind of plays out very similar to yoga. To the extent that AIP, specifically Sam Arkoff, did not like the fact that he did this movie because they were planning a second film. And so they bought the rights to the movie to effectively bury it, released it after the second Yorga film, and the movie kind of went into obscurity. It did get a DVD release, um, I think circa 2005, by Retro Media. It's out of print now. I watched it on YouTube. Someone uploaded copies of it on YouTube. I recommend you watch it to get another taste of Robert Quarry, but I think by the time you watch it, you'll get a feel. I think he was a one-trick pony. I think he had a style, and that's probably why we didn't see him in more than what we did. So I'm very confused by this because the poster for Count Yorga Vampire right at the top says Mistress of the Death Master. And then the poster for The Return of Count Yorga says the Death Master is back from beyond the grave. So I don't get, I don't get, what's the deal with, I don't know, I don't understand it. It's weird know. to me. Yeah, I don't know if they decided to try to, because it didn't come out until after, but he made it between, but maybe they were trying to throw that in and then thinking that they'd eventually release it and make some money off of that. If they bought the rights, I'm surprised they didn't just release it as a another Yorga movie. Well... I mean, and they could have made some changes to, but I mean, he's definitely not Yorga, though. I yeah, mean, he, okay. He's definitely a hippie. He's a guru hippie. He looks different, yet he kind of, as, when you take all the guru aspects out of it and he goes into vampire mode, he's kind of the same. Okay. But he's definitely not Yorga. So there's no way they could make it a third Yorga film unless okay. Yorga. Started, not even like, well. Yorga was smoking something on the side and, and turned into a hippie, I guess, maybe. Now, there's no way you could. And it feels very different in some ways from the Yorga films because they're, they zone in on the kids and the hippie nature of it. But then the randomness of the plot and the way that vampire lore is just kind of thrown out the window, it definitely reminded me of the Yorga films in some ways. And so maybe that's why AIP got, you know, a little bee in their bonnet because 
it was very much, I think, inspired by Yorga with a guru, hippie, vampire uh, twist. And that's probably why they didn't like it. Because, well, we didn't do it. And how dare you do another vampire flick when we're trying to create you as this, this Yorga character? Because, I mean, admittedly, if the other studio would have released it, it would have been kind of confusing. It's kind of like if Christopher Lee, you know, in the height of the of the Hammer films, decided to do another vampire film, it could cause some confusion, which did happen towards the end. I mean, he was still doing the Hammer films, and then he does the Jess Franco Count Dracula. And I remember reading that there was people who were confused because when they saw Christopher Lee, Count Dracula... They were expecting Hammer, and then, nope, this is not the same Dracula whatsoever. So that may have been AIP's concern. Hmm. Nonetheless, De- Deathmaster's worth checking out. It's a, it's a trippy little film, but I actually kind of enjoyed it. And on the same level of the Orga films, actually, pros and cons, and you just there's some things that kind of make your head scratch, more so with Return of Count Yorga. There were things I really liked about Count Yorga Vampire, the first film. So I loved the seance setting and how he was brought into that and introduced to the other characters in a very non-traditional role and used that as a way to kind of get his foot in the door with what would ultimately be victims, right? I, I liked that. I thought that was a, a unique twist. And I think that on the flip side, I found it very odd then when the, the character of um, Dr. Jim Hayes, Roger Perry, some of his scenes with, was it Paul or Mike? I kept getting those confused when I was trying to go through my notes. I mean, obviously, they're filming these scenes like they're by the ocean or whatever. And they're dubbing in. Oh, yeah. They in did that in both dialogue. movies. Yeah. Seems so weird to me. It just like, ugh, it, I don't know. I hate when they films do that. It was just so obvious. Like I know they're not really talking now. They're sitting in a studio doing that, and just kind of rambling almost. It's like you know, I don't know. And it's so silly in a way because they'll go from like the Golden Gate Bridge to then suddenly they're somewhere else, and yet the conversation is continuing. It's not like it stopped and they started up yeah, again. It's it, yeah, yeah, very unusual, right? And I, and it's you know, hey, let let's take a few location shots to make our film look grander than it really is. I think that's what that was. Let me talk about Jim Hayes then. So, Roger Perry, limited actor, but that's my Star Trek connection. You know where I'm going with this. So, he played the character of Captain Christopher in the first season classic Trek episode, Tomorrow is Yesterday, which is a really cool episode. In that episode, the Enterprise... Um, gets goes through a slingshot effect and they land in, in 1967, 1966 um, Earth and have to try to find a way to to get back. They know about time travel from the earlier first season episode, The Naked Time, so they figure out they can go do the slingshot around the sun and they can end up going back in time. But there's some cool location shots, or I should say stock footage, but when the the jets are trying to pursue the enterprise and that's some cool stuff. And, you know, he, he plays a character who ends up being kind of his son ends up playing a semi historical role. And so they've got to return him to his right time. That's where I always, I've seen him guest roles on other TV shows, 
that that hindered when I watched these movies. I kept thinking of his Star Trek performance because I've seen that episode of Star Trek one hundred times, you know, and I kept going back to that. And then again, seeing him in the second movie, we'll talk about that. But that is an even bigger problem for me. He doesn't fare too well in this film, and he's clearly kind of playing the Van Helsing role, but not very convincingly, I don't think. Well, it's really weird because in both movies, it's not, uh, it's a weird way that they come about, you know, believing that it's a vampire and convincing others. It's not that they have evidence that, you know, he's a vampire or that something's happened, but. It's the opposite. It's, well, you can't prove they don't exist. Therefore, they must. (laughs) And he, you know, casually comes to accepting and doesn't really believe it. But, hey, let's go and and see if we can prove it, you know. But until you prove that there's not, well, there just could be vampires. Yeah. It's, yeah, problematic at times. So I liked, speaking of likes, I did like some of the camera work in in this one a lot of like sort of handheld uh, a lot of close-ups a lot of out of focus uh, shots of of characters in when they're you know the main focus of the scene that that, that was a little unusual there was one <laughs> okay this is my little i sorry that's right. my side rant because i i saw the same thing and this is what it made me think of i i don't think this is where they were going with it but Back in, in the 1980s, I worked at a video store, and we had cable-rated porn films. Yep. And so what cable-rated porn films were is they would take the porn films, and when it came to the money shot, they would zoom in on the face, and they would always be out of focus. And you're hearing all this action going on. Meanwhile, you're looking at the nostrils of, of you know whoever the gal was or guy. And I, I always just that whenever I see that in movies or an out of focus, and, and when I saw that in this one, it made me think is like, okay, maybe this is one of those scenes. Maybe there was something going on that we didn't, you know, I don't know. I I had to, sorry, I had to go in there. No, no, that's funny. That just made me laugh when I saw that. Yeah. There's also one really cool scene, and again, this is when they go to his uh, mansion. Jorga's sitting on the right side of the screen in a chair. We see profile. He's looking. To our left, it would be forward for him. He's all the way to the right side of the screen, and there's like a lot of space between him and the left side of the screen. Then when they go to, it was probably Dr. Hayes that was sitting on the other side. He's on the left side of the screen, his back to the left side of the screen profile, and there's a lot of space in between. So when they, I don't know, I found that an interesting shot. I can't possibly believe it was purposeful or meant anything subtle, but it looks cool. I should also clarify my comment about the the porn films. Remember, I was an employee, and it was research purposes. There we go. (laughs) Yeah. The rest of the cast, I mean, are people I had never seen in films before, and I kind of they just kind of blended together a little bit. You've got Paul and Mike, and Paul is played by Michael Murphy, still acting. Uh, yeah, he's a familiar face. He's probably one of those guys that's been in a lot of lots stuff. Lots of TV stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, a character actor, I guess. Mike Thompson was played by Michael McReady, who also was one of the producers of the film. And his father, George McReady, who was the one who did the narration at the beginning of the movie. Uh, Michael McReady 
doesn't have a lot of film credit roles, only 18, not a lot as an actor. And his last role, this kind of tells you how quickly his career took a turn, was in Rescue from Gilligan's Island. In 1978, he played FBI Man Number 2. <laughs> so, Number 2. The women of the film, you've got uh, the character of Donna, played by Donna Anders. Seven film credits. A couple other horror films. Dream No Evil from 1970, which I've heard of. Don't think I've seen. Hmm. And then Werewolves on Wheels in 1971 was her last role. This was towards the end of her career. Erica Landers was played by Judy Lange. 14 film credits, so you see a pattern going on here. TV work, a film called The Psycho Lover, and uh, this was her last movie. This movie didn't necessarily kickstart a lot of careers, and I don't think the character of, of Bruda necessarily was an Oscar award-winning performance by Edward Walsh. I will say he's in a movie called Crypt of the Living Dead, which I believe is on my DVR. I think I've recorded it during the holidays or Halloween season. So um, he was in an episode of Bionic Woman, did TV work. We would see Bruda again in the second film. He plays kind of the, the sidekick doing the, I don't, is he on level with other sidekicks? I don't know. He's just kind of doing Count Yorga's bidding. So. Yeah, we know nothing about him. He's just there and he's got a scarred face. Yeah. So, um, what about... And I, I, before you go on, I do want to say, with the exception of possibly Michael Murphy, uh, not terribly great actors. No, no. There's a reason why we're talking 18 film credits, 7, 14, mm. I mean, and this was at the end of their career. So, no, the, the acting was what you might expect from a softcore porn film. Let me ask you this. We talk about Robert Quarry, and if he had the chops, you know, to replace Vincent Price, maybe it's not so much him as what he was in. I mean, he's got no support here, basically, as far as acting goes. No, that's why I was kind of saying earlier, too. Yeah, I think if he was given something meatier, maybe something would have been better for him. Um, he's not given a lot to do in Madhouse, really. I mean... He's got a smaller role in that. I think he does well in Dr. Fives Rises again, but he's kind of, in my mind at least, he's kind of, again, I go back to my one-trick pony thing, he's kind of got a style, and that limits an actor. I mean, but again, but it also depends on the material. Vincent Price had a style, but it was a damn good style, and he was given, generally speaking, some pretty good material to work with, and even when he was given bad material he could make a movie shine. So it's a mixture, I think, of what you're given to work with and what you have to work with. Uh, and I think it may be a mixture of that. What about that uh, that pet cat scene? <laughs> uh, that was... That was something. That that was pretty horrific. It, so <clears throat> are you, have you done... Did you see how they did it? How they... No. Okay. Here's, here's the movie magic, folks. Ooh. The poor cat was sedated. So that right, you know, again, not going to happen in 2020. But back then, yep, they sedated the cat and uh, used canned lasagna to recreate the blood and guts. So this poor cat gets knocked out and gets lathered up with canned lasagna. I mean, that changes. I And I knew that before the scene because I knew... When I was doing the research, and I said, okay, this scene's coming up. Carlo's got to look the other way. And I was, like, I was like, there it is. 
Chef Boyardee canned lasagna, probably. I don't know. It made Yeah, that, there's the movie Magic, folks. In today's day and age, it would be CGI. Uh, back then, Chef Boyardee and some, I don't know, <laughs> some drugs for the poor cat. So We should tell people what's happening to the cat. So the first uh, victim of, of uh, Count Yorga is Erica. And uh, she's lost a lot of blood, and they think it might be because of those puncture marks on her throat. But anyway, uh, so she devolves quickly, and they find her pacing around the house, kitten in hand, chowing down on the cat. Definitely a very, very effective scene. Uh, Made less effective when you realize that it's lasagna, but (laughs) effective all the same. Um, I don't think SpaghettiOs would have had the same look. No, although... could have given the impression of maybe intestines, you know, with the little O's. All right. Now I'm hungry for spaghetti O's. So, I did enjoy the movie, despite the fact that it's kind of all over the place. Doesn't make a lot of sense why a couple would get stuck in a driveway and decide, well, gosh, we don't want to go back to the house. We're just going to camp the night out here. And, oh, by the way, you know... why don't we go into my van and back and make love? I mean, that is classic porn setup, right? So you get elements of that that I think kind of hurt the movie a little bit. You've always got stupid moments like that in horror films. But that was really kind of stretching it for me. I was like, wow. Okay, you you both deserve to die because <laughs> you're, you're, you're... I mean, you got sometimes you've got characters in films like that. It's like... You know what? You feel sorry for some, and then then there's those characters like you know what? We're doing we're doing the Earth a service. You know we need to cleanse. Uh, I don't know. Um, so yeah, when I watched this the first time, which I don't remember, but you know I rate everything on IMDb. I gave this thing an eight. There's no way I'd give it an eight today. I mean, if I'm being kind, I'd give it a, a seven. But I don't know. It was it was tedious for me this time. First time viewing for me, I enjoyed it despite its flaws, and I would probably would watch it again. But I'm going into knowing that it's very lighthearted fare that I think could have been better. Again, maybe the script, maybe the actor, maybe the actors supporting him. But I think there could have been more here. Uh, not terrible, but there could have been more. Speaking of the, the the script, so this was written and directed by Bob Kelgen. Uh, 25 credits, lots of TV work. He did come back and do The Return of Count Yorga, but he also did Scream, Blackula, Scream. And he died at a young age. Again, a theme, unfortunately. 1982, he died at the age of 52 of cancer. Hmm. So not a lot of people remember Bob Kelgen with probably good reason, but... Um, you know, he did do more than just one film. And so Yorga must have generated something for him to go ahead and be given Scream, Blackula, Scream. So, which, that's probably a better film than Yorga, depending. I heard recently, I don't know where, somebody likes that more than the original. Derek, over at Monster Kid Radio. Yeah, I just listened to that episode myself. So, yeah, and actually it's been a while since I've seen those. I do enjoy those movies, been a while. I guess that says something about Bob Kelgen, but it also says something. When Yorga and Scream Blackula Scream are the peaks of your career. Uh, I think it's I think this movie is a it's it is what it is and it's a product of everything kind of, you know, supporting cast, script, director, 
Robert Quarry, all of it, you kind of get what you get. But there was enough there that they said, let's do this again and do the sequel. That says something. One other thing quick that I did like, I liked how they sort of made their makeshift weapons. They broke broomsticks and uh, chair legs to make, you know, stakes. And then they picked up twigs along the way uh, so that they could form crosses if they needed to. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was... uh, And I think there's some of that in Deathmaster. I'm thinking of that. I think there is something along those lines. I could be wrong. And there's something else that happens. They don't do it as much in this one, but they do in the second one. And so let's talk about it then. But it's a particular style they do during uh, some of the vampire attacks. I'm curious what you think about that. But we'll talk about that in the next one. Anything else on... Oh, I don't think so. It, no, I enjoyed it. It's it's okay. Not as good as I remembered. Maybe it just doesn't stand up to repeat viewings. Um, I obviously thought at one point that um, there was more to it than I, I do at this particular point. I will say that it uh, is available on Twilight Time Blu-ray. Hmm. I don't understand how Twilight Time picks their films and how they manage to get the rights. But Twilight Time also puts a hefty price on their Blu-rays, so shop around for the best price. Uh, just in a couple of days, the price on Amazon did change, so it went from being a little pricier to a little cheaper. Shop around on the Twilight Time ones. They do generally go out of print, and so sometimes that causes movies to generate a higher price, whether they deserve it or not. So buyer beware. Let's take a quick break, come back, and talk about the sequel. Who knows the evil force that rules the night? Who calls forth those terrors from beyond the grave to prowl its shadows? Where is the overlord of the damned? Beware his coming. Beware the return of the Death Master. The attack of the undead. I can destroy you. Or turn you into the living dead. The most horrifying love story ever filmed. When she discovers what you are, she'll sicken at your name. Kill her. Kill Count Yorga is back, with as little explanation about his arrival as he had in the original movie. It may seem odd that he sets his sights on a nearby orphanage, but it's the lovely choir teacher, Cynthia Nelson, that he's really after. His brides are a little worse for wear, but it's them and his deformed assistant, Bruda, that do most of Yorga's dirty work. We're back with the sequel to Count Yorga Vampire called maybe not so originally, The Return of Count Yorga. 
before we dive into that, uh, I'm going to stir this up just a little bit too. What happened in 2017? Now we're going to talk about 1971, but because this is our third anniversary show, what happened in 2017? Now I'm going to I'm not going to go as in great detail because. Quite frankly, the news was damn depressing from three years ago. We started off so good. I don't want to get political, but yes, we had a change of, of office or person in the office three years ago, and things just kind of went rapidly downhill. Interestingly enough, every article I pulled up on what happened in 2017 commented on what what a year it was, so... <laughs> Let's talk about music. I don't know if this is any better, but one of the songs has meaning to me. Top songs of 2017, Shape of You by Ed Sheeran. I'm not an Ed Sheeran fan, but the other song, Something Just Like This by The Chainsmokers and Coldplay, that is Carla and I's song. Before I even met Carla, she said, listen to this song. And the lyrics of that song very much was tied into what Carla and I were were kind of looking for and going through when we met. I thought that was kind of fun. Top TV shows back in 2017, so long ago. Game of Thrones, Stranger Things, Twin Peaks, and The Walking Dead. Uh, Top movies of the year, Wonder Woman, Logan, Star Wars, The Last Jedi, The Shape of Water, Coco, and the Lego Batman movie. And the top horror movies of the year included Get Out, It, and Kong Skull Island. So there you go, three years ago in 2017. Let's let's take the Wayback Machine and go farther back to 1971. I think we might have done this year before, but you know what? We're going to do it again anyway. Uh, in 1971, you could buy a tape cassette recorder for $30. The microprocessor was invented. Walt Disney World opened in 1971. China was admitted into the United Nations. Charlie Manson received the death penalty. Led Zeppelin released their classic fourth album. Jim Morrison was found dead in a bathtub in Paris. Top songs of the year included Joy to the World by Three Dog Night, Maggie May by Rod Stewart, She's a Lady by Tom Jones, and How Can You Mend a Broken Heart by the Bee Gees. Top books of the year. Boy, this is taking one extreme to the other. And literally, this was on a list that I saw. The Lorax by Dr. Seuss and The Exorcist by <laughs> William Peter Blatty. Uh, <laughs> top TV shows, All in the Family, Marcus Wilby, MD, Gunsmoke, and Mannix. Popular films of the day, James Bond 007, Diamonds Are Forever, Clint Eastwood and Dirty Harry, A Clockwork Orange, and Shaft. Top horror films of the year included The Abominable Dr. Fives, Twins of Evil, Willard, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, the Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave, The Night of Dark Shadows, and Octoman. So, <laughs> how about that for 1971? And, of course, the year that The Return of Count Yorga came out, or as it was known at one point on CBS Late Night. When it was, Remember the CBS Late Night? Oh, yeah. yeah. They would sometimes tweak film titles around. When it played in the late 1970s, it was called Yorga Returns. Why they changed the name, I don't know, but nonetheless, they did. The Return of Count Yorga. So at the end of the last film, Yorga is defeated, Bruda is dead, but those Santa Anna winds can work (laughs) mysteries. 
that is about the best explanation we get as to why Yorga and Bruda are back in this film. You know what? I think we could cut this really short, and this would tell us how how much how, how we like this movie. All I want to say is it has quicksand. <laughs> yes, any movie with quicksand is a good enough movie for me. I think of that theme or the you know, that says, you know, I always thought quicksand was going to be more of a hazard as I grew up. <laughs> and well, you know, it was for for the the priest. And I had to laugh, right? The, you know, we're jumping ahead, obviously, but I don't even know the priest's name. But you know, he's he's convinced that maybe there are such things as vampires. And then he meets up with Count Yorga. Walk with me in the woods, Father, and I'm going to give your church lots and lots of money. Oh, well, I I kind of thought that whole thing about vampires was rather silly. And I was like, I'm, I know, I know. Go throw a little money at any pastor and, well, let's, let's all three think things, you know, for that, that money. And then where does it... Where does it end him up in? He's in a pile of quicksand and sinking. And it's like, you you fiend, you fiend. And he's like sinking. Holding the cross above his head. Yes. And that's the last thing that goes yes. down. Yes, I thought that was hilarious. Yep. What did you think about those Santa Ana winds bringing back Count Yorga in this uh, one? Oh, I kind of liked it. I think they they both beat it into the ground too much and yet dropped it suddenly. I thought it maybe it was going to be a bigger theme throughout the movie, these Santa Ana winds, because they make such a freaking big deal about it. I at know, the and they just stop. They yeah. just. And I kept thinking, is like, I, I get it. I've heard about Santa Ana winds in other movies too, but I'm thinking, you know, how many vampires would get resurrected in Kansas? Because we have a lot of wind <laughs> here in the Midwest, and and so I just I thought that was they were beating that that dead horse over the head and reviving it and beating it to death again and then okay we're not going to mention it again ever it was a a very uh about face change this movie's got a lot more humor in it i think yeah this is you know this movie again is kind of like the first one there's elements of the movie i like and elements i don't i'm not a fan of the whole orphanage setting in this one it seemed just weird because you don't see very many kids. I think you see three kids. You see the two boys and, and then whoever I figured the boy that ends up getting mesmerized. And that's it. You really don't see very many other kids. And But there's this costume party thing going on with all the adults and the teachers. So. And did you notice the clock? It was 11 o'clock. What are these kids doing having a concert at 11 o'clock at night? Yeah. <laughs> they should be in bed. <laughs> I didn't see that, but that is funny. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. There's not a lot of supervision at this orphanage. Later on, you know, the two kids are running around, and the priest says, well, have you seen so-and-so? No, Father. It's like, oh, all right, go along and play. Okay, well, who's supervising them? Because everyone's dead. I mean, I you know, except for the, the, the character, the who was it, uh, Jennifer who was, you know, unable to speak. Nothing against that, but that's the the chief person taking care of the kids now, and she can't relay if there's a problem. I mean, they yeah. can't. When the two kids are fighting down below, she has to throw something down yeah. out of the window yes. to get their attention. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh my gosh. It's just kind of like, who is running this orphanage? Because they're dropping like flies. And I'm sorry, the priest was not not the person I would put in charge. He didn't have a clue. I don't know. I, I didn't like the orphanage setting. I, I've read some places where some people 
like to theorize that this is almost a reboot of Yorga, that it's not so much a sequel, that it could be seen as its own separate film, which would then, you wouldn't have to worry about Yorga and Bruda being brought back to life because they were never killed. Now, obviously, though, the title, Return of Count Yorga, they approach this as a sequel, but if you look at it that way and just throw out the title and just say, well, you know what, the first movie didn't happen, this is just a another vampire film and that kind of gets you get past that but again there's some vampire lore gets thrown out the window really cool scene when all the vampire women come clawing out of the ground but why were they in the ground to begin with and were those the same women i know there's more of them but i i was curious if if they were supposed yeah, to. Yeah, especially the one main They seemed kind of similar. Hair. They seemed, the one with the long dark hair, I can't even remember her name, from the, like, the main person from the first one, I wondered if she was... It wasn't the same actress, oh, no. Yeah. She wasn't listed, but I mean, I, I wondered if they were trying to give the impression that these are all the same women. And what's interesting, too, is these are not beautiful vampire brides in this one. They're... Well, there was, the, but again, that kind of varies, because there's one that looks had less makeup and looked more attractive than a couple of the others were like rather hideous. And that doesn't necessarily go with vampire lore either because usually the vampire women are attractive. So again, you you have to take the vampire lore and throw it out the window because they apparently did because they were kind of all over the, all over the place. Bob Kelgen was the director again. And, and at least and I found this interesting. So this, there's two people credited for the screenplay, Bob Kelgen and Yvonne Wilder, who played Jennifer Nelson, and this is her only film she ever had a screen credit or a screenplay role uh, or credit, hmm. screenplay credit. I, did who was she with in the in the film? I did she get that part? Was she dating somebody? Was she? I couldn't find anything on whether she was with Bob Kelgen. How did she end up getting involved in the script writing process? And then coincidentally also playing a uh, kind of a key role in the film and then she never did another film again kind of weird but i couldn't find anything on it so wonder if she put up some money yeah i want that you know i mean as an actress actually she did lots of tv work i thought i recognized her she's kind of a character actress uh, she was in west side story played consuelo so she was kind of well known i suppose maybe she she did put up some money I don't know. Again, you know, sometimes when you see these random parts of things, you know, she might have been dating somebody that was involved in the movie and they and she got the part that way. It just seemed weird to me that it just kind of came and then she never did it again. Hmm. Maybe she did put the money up and maybe she wanted to try her hand at screenplay writing and then the film did so wonderful that she just never returned to it. I don't know. Uh, and I couldn't find anything on that. I guess let's let's talk about some of the cast. So you've got Robert Quarry back as Count Yorga. He's essentially playing the same version of Count Yorga as he did in the first film. There's really no difference. But then we have Roger Perry back, this time playing Dr. David Baldwin. Okay, let's put the Mirror Universe goatee on him <laughs> so he doesn't look the same. But there's no reason why. Why would you bring him back as a different character a year after the previous movie? Such an odd choice. Was he under contract? Did they have to give him another movie? They Were they running out of films for him to do? I don't know. Very, very weird why they would cast him again in essentially the same role, 
with a little bit of a difference. I mean, he was a bit more accepting of the vampire thing in this one, sort of. He fares a little better at the end than his character did in the first film, but I don't know. That was a very odd Yeah, it, very odd it was odd. You got Marriott Hartley playing Cynthia Nelson. I'm not a Marriott Hartley fan. She was in Twilight Zone. She was in Marnie, which is a classic. She played Zarabeth in the Star Trek uh, third season episode, All Our Yesterdays. And she does well in that episode. She, in that particular episode, Spock and McCoy travel back into the history of this planet to the Ice Age. And she, we find out she was a criminal. And that was her sentence was to be sent and live life in the, in the, in the Ice Age of this planet. She plays in that episode, she plays a very needy, kind of manipulative, kind of whiny character, which was good for that. Every time I see her, though, she kind of is playing the same kind of character. And I don't I don't like it when she does it in other other films. She just seemed to whine on about the Santa Ana winds in this film. And then she she's when she ends up getting taken by by Count Yorga. She comes across as just I don't know. Whiny's not the right word. I just kind of playing the part of of the damsel in distress, but she just I was like I felt like she should have known better. I don't know. Something I just didn't care for her performance in the movie. And I think it's more her as an actress than because she kind of plays that same style and everything I've seen her in and it always just kind of rubs me the wrong way but that's just me I don't know are you a fan of Marriott Hartman? Uh, not particularly I don't know how I know her was she <laughs> this is going to sound stupid if it wasn't the case was she one of the hosts on Good Morning America? Uh, I don't think so okay no. I, I'm thinking of someone else then now I, you might she was in a if, did you watch Incredible Hulk back in the day? yeah she was in the season oh, yeah. 2 premiere she married she was married to him, and I mean, it wasn't the season two premiere. That was somebody else. But she was—I think she married David Bruce Banner or something. I can't remember. It's been a while. But I got to give another Star Trek connection here to the character of Joey. The supporting character was played by actor Michael Pataki. He played Korax, a Klingon in the classic Star Trek episode, "The Trouble with Tribbles." Character actor did all sorts of roles. He did play with Victor Buono. He was one of King Tut's sidekicks in, uh, I believe, a sidekick. He was definitely in a King Tut episode of Batman. He was in a episode of Star Trek The Next Generation called Too Short a Season. Were you a fan of, of Happy Days? Yeah, at a time I was. Do you remember the Pinky Tuscadero storyline? He was Count Malachi. He was one of the Malachi brothers who did the Malachi Crunch. Um, he was also in Dracula's Dog. <laughs> Character actor pops in. Uh, uh, he was always the bad guy and and Every lots of 1970s uh, and 60s and 70s television on into the 80s. A very busy actor, not a list, but you know what? He he mapped out a pretty successful career. Also, this was the film debut for Craig T. Nelson, who played one of the detectives. Of course, best known for Poltergeist and Poltergeist Two and Coach. Oh, well, I was gonna say yes. best known Poltergeist to you. For me, it's Coach. Coach uh, yes. And we mentioned earlier the George McReady, the uh, son of Michael McReady. He plays a professor in this film, and this was his final film. And obviously got the role because of his son. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when the professor, I thought, oh, this is going to be a Van Helsing character, and, you know, they're going to do something with him. Nope. 
just one scene and he's gone and forgotten. Craig Nelson, yeah, it was fun seeing him and he had the kind of the role of the non-believer and this is really when the movie, uh, well, I'm not going to say it's funny, but it, it attempts to use humor. They make those two cops, you know, very comical, running around the house. Oh my gosh, there's a lot of running around the house. That thing must be huge <laughs> with the yeah. twists and turns and the door shutting and them not being able to get... Scooby-Doo going back and forth. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, but, uh, oh, there was... i got to find this line because it was really funny when they're running around the house. And uh, I think Craig Nelson... And it wasn't Craig T. Nelson at this time. It was Craig Nelson. But it's like... Um, Elevated oh. that T status later yes, on. Yes. Oh, so they, they're running around like crazy, and he asks, What are we running for? And the other one says, Because we're scared. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I, well, you're laughing. You got more out of my rendition of it than I got out of watching the movie. <laughs> but it's just your telling of it. It's like, Yeah. yeah it's like, Yeah. Again, I'm going to say this just, I mean, more I'm thinking about this, I think the, the script problems. I'm going to put the blame on Bob Kelgen. I, you know, there was, there was some dialogue in both these films that just kind of left you scratching your head. Now, there were a few things, though, about this movie that, again, I don't know that it was done intentional, but I, I said that, you know, that Robert Quarry was essentially playing the same Count Yorga. I did get the feel in this film, though, that maybe there was a maybe a more human side to him there's a scene with him and Cynthia, and there's there's definitely a connection. He's not wanting to just bite her and make her a victim. I sense that maybe he loved Cynthia, or definitely had a, uh, a an emotional attraction to her. I thought they were going to go into a plot of, of like a Dark Shadows thing, because they're at dinner and she's wearing this, well, quote, beautiful dress, and she wants to know whose was this, and he make some cryptic reference to somebody he knew or something. And I thought, oh, she's a reincarnation of his long lost love or something. And we're going to see a subplot with that. And that, that went nowhere. Lost opportunity. I mean, that would have, that would have, uh, I don't know if that would have saved, I didn't hate the film, but I mean, it would have elevated it maybe a little bit. I don't know if it would have made it that much better, but it would have added a layer, uh, another layer of depth to it, I think. Yeah. I also commented about the female vampires that they seemed more aggressive in this film. And I think you commented earlier, they seemed to be a little bit more haggard in this film. Yeah, they were a bit more animalistic uh, than they were in the first film. And so I don't know if that was intentional or just the way that it played out. I want to say that I don't have enough faith in Bob Kelgen as a director to say that this was intentional. So I'm thinking maybe it just kind of happened Maybe the actresses played it that way, and they just kind of kept going and said, well, keep running the film, and it just kind of played out that way. I don't know. Now, without seeing the script and without knowing anything more about the production, I just have to make an educated guess, and I'm going to say I think it was more of the people playing the part than any direction they were given. Yeah, and this movie looks better to me, just physically. It had a different cinematographer, and interestingly, I don't know if if you agree, but, I mean, there's no one out of focus in this one. It seems crisper, more clear. Yeah, Um, I agree. This cinematographer did Deathmaster. So do you recall, and I know you saw it on YouTube, I don't know how good the quality was, was, but was it like a crisp, clean cinematography? I think so. I mean, I'm trying to, you know, there's the opening scene on the beach, was actually well done. 
It was kind of an interesting, you know, when Barbados goes to the top of the cliff and he has this like, he's carrying this satchel or, or something and then there's like this, this, the plot, one of the subplots to Deathmaster was that they were trying to tie it into the druids because there's this whole druid sacrifice in the final film. Which was kind of weird because, like, well, is he a vampire? Is he a druid? He's, he's a druid vampire. But, yeah, there was some really good good cinematography at the, at the beach. Not a lot of opportunity, though, because there was some of the... Um, there's not a castle, but the house that they're in, which happens to have subterranean lair. <laughs> which, why not, you know? Which happens to have leeches, lurking about because again you know i i've got them in my basement i don't know about you but you never know you know when you might yeah i'm I'm probably giving too much away about death master but there's this whole thing the leeches have an effect on cord like they attach to the face and it like is ultimately one of the things that leads to his death and i'm like i you know death by leeches i don't know it's like as a vampire you would think he'd be more impervious to leeches but I, anyway, I digress. Yes, um, what, what? how was the cinematography in Deathmaster? <laughs> I think it was good okay. for what opportunity that you had. Because, again, there was a lot of the scenes were in the same... The sets were limited. They're basically filming a lot of the stuff in this like little beachside villa, supposedly. A village that, I, you know, there's not a lot that they could do with, with some of these scenes. Um you're getting kind of a, a desert town vibe, even though you're supposedly by the beach. It's a hippie culture kind of thing. And a lot of it's people in, in kind of a darker set room tuning out and playing guitar and, and smoking. And yeah, yeah, not a lot of opportunity beyond the beach scene, I don't think. How do you like Yorga's um, MO for attacking people? Uh, I just found it very interesting. He barrels towards them, arms straight forward. He's laughing, growling, I don't know, something. (laughs) But it's like he's on a a dolly and someone's pulling him. So I don't know if he's supposed to be floating, but he just pops out of nowhere and and it's very... uh, You know, there's a lot of noise and he's just right towards him. When uh, Roger Perry is leaving the one room as if the women are chasing me, leaves the room and he turns down the hallway and there he is. Did you notice that he knocked over one of the candles off of the chandelier on the side? No. So first off, I'm wondering why is there candles everywhere? You know, and who lights those candles? (laughs) But he, he hits the wall and ends up knocking one of the candles off of the thing. And I don't think that I get the think they kept shooting. And I just kept thinking like, there's going to be a fire somewhere. Why is the rug? Cause in any other movie, Three seconds later, the house would be in flames. And this one, no, it was just an error. And they just kept filming. I don't know. It was kind of funny. But yes, because then immediately from that, then you've got him barreling down the hallway. Ah! You know, going out. I was like, and kind of does the same thing in Deathmaster. So oh, that's, yeah? that's a Robert Quarry. Go with it. Be one with a vampire. He must bring his own dolly. I guess. You know, he kind of does the same crazy turn when he's he's wooing this gal in in the bedroom and and you know all of a sudden he goes from being romantic to 
she like looks in the mirror and he's not there and he's like bet you know and he says you know keep looking in the mirror keep looking in the mirror and the mirror breaks and then she turns around and he's like ah, he goes crazy and like, ah goes screaming at her i can't imagine that that has to be a has to be him has to be his vision of what a vampire was hmm so i mean i it's weird you know count yorga i thought i liked it better than i did I guess I have to say I liked this better than I thought I would, but really they both come through really to me as solid sixes. Maybe if I'm feeling good, a seven. I, I would agree. There, I, and that's uh, not bad. No, I mean, no, they're 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 fun late night Saturday afternoon, rainy afternoon flicks. I, I these are the films that are kind of middle of the road. They're they're not classics, but they're not horrible. They're fun to stick on, and you know, I don't have the return of Count Yorga in my collection. I don't know that I would actively seek it out to buy it, but if I stumbled upon it on sale or something, I probably would add it to my collection. It did get released by Shout Factory, so it's available on Blu-ray. So I'm sure it has you know a nice crisp clear picture, and you can get it for relatively cheap. Shout Factory has sales from time to time, so you look out for that. And it might, like I said, it might be something I add to my collection somewhere down the road. I did enjoy the movies for first-time viewings. I didn't really go in with any lofty expectations, so I kind of got what I was expecting from them. I kind of just thought that they're going to be fun, quirky little vampire flicks, which essentially is what they were. So I wasn't disappointed. I wasn't, you know, my expectations weren't blown out of the water. It was just kind of middle of the road as you said i would agree with that rating very much so i would i recommend these you know they're not bad so yeah, a lot of people like them i when i posted that i was watching it you know people commented that they love the movie and and i mean i can see that it's 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 not bad no and it's it's not bad it's it's i don't think it's the classic for me personally that some people view it as but it's not a horrible they're not horrible films either I, I think that there's a few problems in both movies that either, again, could be the writing, could be the direction, could be Robert Corey's performance, a, or a mixture thereof. One thing I would say about them, they are not a miasma of putrid decay. <laughs> no, they are not. There are no, no miasmas to be found here. Okay, then. Let's take one last break, come back, and uh, do new business.
dance. And death takes a murdering holiday. We are back with home video releases for the month of January. Richard, have you ever seen a movie called The Final Program? It's a sci-fi movie from 1973. You Have you watched this or did you have it? Okay, I've seen that the title somewhere. No, I have not seen it, it, but I've heard it mentioned. Yeah, it sounds very interesting. I have to read this uh, synopsis. A trio of scientists plan to create a self-replicating immortal hermaphrodite using the final program developed by a Nobel Prize winning dead scientist. Um, okay. Directed by Robert Fuest, who did Dr. Fibes. Not really any big star. Well, I don't know. Some of the doctors who got Patrick McGee, Sterling Hayden sounds familiar, John Finch. I don't know. It. it Definitely not buying this one sight unseen, but uh, I was just curious if you knew anything about it. Only 81 minutes long. <laughs> the hermaphrodite didn't sell you on the film alone? Come on. Yeah. So anyway, that comes out January 7th, I believe, from Shout Factory. 14th, couple more. Uh, Hammer just keeps on coming. Demons of the Mind from 72 and The Mummy's Shroud from 67. And then January 28th, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, 1971. Got my Doctor Who reference. Thank you. <sighs> The Mummy Shroud features Roger Delgado, who played the master on Doctor Who. There we go. I guess that counts. It, it didn't have anything to do with the movies no, we reviewed. No, but by the skin of my teeth, I found a way to get it included. So. All right. All right. Speaking of the loves of Count Yorga or his vampire brides, we have a couple birthdays in January that uh, females that have been in vampire movies. Ms. Carolyn Monroe, January 16th, 1949. Uh, was in, of course, Dracula 80, 1972. Possibly others. She was in the Fives films as well. Yeah. And then Sharon Tate, January 24th, 1943. I may have mentioned this recently. Uh, she was in Fearless Vampire Killers. But, uh, you know, tragic, tragic story of her, Charles Manson and everything. Beautiful woman. Yes. Have you, I mean, I've always knew of her, but if I ever just pause to like look at her pictures, beautiful. She's also in one of the Dean Martin, Matt Helm movies too, if mm. I remember correctly. Because I think they had that in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think there was a yes. reference to, yeah. to it. Yeah, I forgot that she was in that. Yes, a tragic end. Uh, interestingly enough, talking about Manson again. So um, for this time period, uh, I've never seen Fearless Vampire Killers. Mm. It's another one of those that's really a good movie, but it's long, and Roman Polanski just, uh, you know, I have a hard time getting motivated to watch it, but I always enjoy it when I do. I know that it's popped up oftentimes in, in October on Turner Classic Movies. They didn't do that this year, mm, no. so uh, I was kind of disappointed. I was a little surprised because I believe, was it Warner Archive, or it's just gotten a Blu-ray release. Oh, um, and so oftentimes, you know, if Turner's got the rights to a film and it's getting released, they oftentimes throw it on their schedule. So 
Uh, I've been looking for it to maybe pop up, but hasn't yet. <laughs> movies released in January. Several vampire movies over the years have been released. Dracula, Prince of Darkness, January 9th, 1966. That was the UK release date. The Night Stalker television movie aired January 11th, 1972. File that in your memories for just a couple moments. Satanic Rites of Dracula, January 13th, 1974 in the UK. The Vampire Bat, going way back January 31st, 1933. And then Countess Dracula, January 31st, 1972. Those are birthdays and anniversaries and January releases. That is typically our new business. And we always wrap that up discussing what each of us are working on with our projects outside the podcast. Are we going to do that? Uh, we can. I mean, we're having to look a little ahead in the future. I... Let, let's play that game. I'll go first. And yes. so January, where do I want to be in January 20? And by the way, uh, you know, by going through that exercise and saying that, you are bringing it into reality. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So uh, And being held accountable. Yes. So uh, in January of 2020, I, I have just relaunched uh, my blog with the, the additional expansions that I've spoken about before. And the buzz is so high, Richard, that I already have won Rondo Awards and Fori Awards and rewards from all my friends who have podcasts and, and websites. So it has been a great success. All That two months off really paid off. Um, it's really going well. <laughs> Um, Hollywood has been on the phone that, you know, that has brought attention to it. They really like my writing. Uh, I've got a 10 movie contract, <laughs> yeah. uh, with Disney. So, you know, just a few things are going on with me. Uh, what's, what's going on with you? Well, I'm working down at the soup kitchen in my time <laughs> off, you know, uh, you get free food and, and, and free benefits. No, um, <laughs> how do I follow that up? My gosh, your career skyrocketed. You know, uh, January, like I said, um, I, I think in 2020, looking at doing uh, a couple of things, whether or not they tie into the blog or not, Carl and I really want to dive into uh, Sherlock Holmes films. And I have a feeling that that'll pop up into the blog in some variety or another. Uh, maybe not every single Sherlock Holmes film will be covered, but... I could see some some random articles being written about because I love Sherlock Holmes. I've I've been a fan, and I've read most, if not all, but most of the original Sir Arthur Conan Doyle stories many years ago. So, looking forward to that. Maybe tying that into the to the blog. Also talking about I think we mentioned last time the possibility of doing a series in old time radio adaptations, which would tie into some horror adaptations. I love a mystery and the Whistler. The Shadow as well, I, which I did on the blog many years ago, but I could kind of tie that in a little bit. Yeah, you know, starting off the year, um, just kind of easing into things. And uh, between the time that we record this and, and January actually arrives, maybe inspiration will hit me for something else. But I do know that looking a little farther down the line, in May... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, we're going to have some theme months, uh, some kind of mini theme months in 2020. May, in particular, we're going to be taking a look at the non-horror films of Vincent Price, uh, finishing up the 31 Days of Halloween. There were still some Vincent Price films that I wanted to watch and that Carla wants to watch that are not horror-related. And I got to thinking there's some like non-horror films from like Lon Chaney Jr. that I'd like to maybe uh, go over as well. So... And then 
along the way, you know, kind of fluctuate back and forth between sticking towards a more monster movie kid theme to then going more towards the Kansas City cinephile, which is is across all genres. That's what's going on with me. Very good. Let's remind people how they can contact us, and let's start the new year off with lots of feedback, lots of comments, lots of ratings on iTunes or uh, Apple Podcasts, I guess they call it now. If you want to call in, our number is 616-649-2582. Our email address is classichorrors.club at gmail.com. We have the Classic Horrors Club Facebook group page that we would love to have you join and, and join the conversations going on there. All kinds of ways to contact, give us some feedback, participate in the program. It's not so much about tell us how we're doing, because quite honestly, we're probably going to do what we do anyway, <laughs> anyway. good or bad. Uh, but we'd love to have you participate. We, we think of it as a club meeting. and Suggestions. Give us some suggestions oh, that's a good on idea. shows. You know, yeah. um, we did Faye Ray episode last year, um, which was, um, you know, not our idea at all. And we had a lot of fun with that. So we've got some ideas lined out for 2020, but we've also are, are totally open to your suggestions, themes, or random films, you know, that, that doesn't always have to be a theme. It's fun when we do themes, but it's also fun that we could do a random month of just three films that have nothing to do with each other. So... Let us know what you want us to, to cover. We want to include you in that in that journey. So we want to hear what you have uh, to say. And, and maybe your ideas will become a reality in a future episode of the Cla- Classic Horse Club <laughs> podcast. Yes. Talk about making your, your wildest fantasies become real. That can happen. We promise you that. <laughs> so we're going to close. And, and Richard, we failed to mention this. I failed to mention it when we were talking about uh, the return of Count Yorga. In kind of a funny little scene, there is a scene where Count Yorga and uh, maybe Bruda are, are watching a movie on TV, and it's the Vampire Lovers from Hammer with Ingrid Pitt in Spanish for some reason, which I thought was kind of interesting. I thought that was kind of interesting, yes. too. And, they, and they're watching a movie in, in the first one, too, but I don't remember that scene, but I, I read somewhere that they huh. were doing that as well, and I'm like, I don't remember that. So. I don't remember that either. So that is uh, the reason, one of the reasons we opened the show with a song called Vampire Lovers, and that is why we're closing the show with a different song called Vampire Lovers. This one is by Drug Squad. It's from their 2010 album, Perversion Street, and that's available on Apple Music. Before we get to that, though, what are we doing in February? (laughs) Yeah, Jeff's looking at me like, oh, gosh darn it. Um, What are we doing in February? I'm not repeating all that. You all remember, okay? <laughs> so in February, we are going to do the Night Stalker. Uh, going to do a little bit of Cold Shack. We're going to take a look at the first two films, the Night Stalker and the Night Strangler. And then we're going to do something a little different. Jeff is going to pick one of his favorite episodes of the television series, which ran for 20 episodes. And then uh, I'm going to say Carla and I will pick an episode because Carla has really been wanting to dive into the Night Stalker series. She's seen random episodes when it was on uh, MeTV uh, on early Sunday mornings, late Saturday nights. Um, Oftentimes I would doze off and MeTV would be on and she'd sit there and get sucked into the episode. And then she'd ask me, you know, oh my gosh, what about this? I said, it's been so long since I've seen him. So I'll pick 
And Carl and I will pick one of our favorite episodes from the series. And you know what? Let's la- ask our listeners to pick their favorite ap- episodes. Yeah, Seriously, I mean, I've, I've been writing about them. Uh, I've been going through the series, and people always comment, oh, they like that episode. Oh, what a great series. I'm sure everyone has a favorite episode of Kolchak the Night Stalker. Let us know what it is in any of the methods that we mentioned, and we'll talk about them on the show. Absolutely. All right. All right, so now we can go to the... Oh. So, no, you tell me. What, what's our song? Uh, <laughs> you, all, you all know what it is. Here it is. Happy New Year, everybody. And we will uh, see you next month. Yes, Happy New Year, everyone. Oh.